Amen, huh? Worship team has certainly made uh, it easier for me to preach this morning. So, love that song. Love that song. Hey, uh, why don't we just bow our heads and uh, just open up in prayer just for a second. Father, we just come in the name of your precious Son, for we can't come in any other name. I just pray that you would speak powerfully now. Use your servant. Spirit, move in hearts and lives. God, I have words on a page have breath that will move through my words, that your spirit would transform us this morning. God, we pray for your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Turn your Bibles to Colossians 1. <clears throat> Colossians 1. Reconciled. Reconciled. Keyword of the morning. Reconciled. That's the title of the message. Anybody know what reconciliation means? I think we need a definition. Let's get a definition. Reconciliation. Here's a definition. Here's the definition we're going to use all morning. Reconciliation is setting up a relationship of peace that was previously non-existent. Reconciliation is setting up a relationship of peace that was previously non-existent. Hey, have you ever had a relationship that wasn't peaceful? We've all been there, haven't we? Reconciliation is what brings peace back to that relationship. It's the same way in our relationship with God. Reconciliation to God establishes a relationship of peace with God that was previously non-existent. That's what Christ did for us. He set up a relationship of peace with us when we had no peace. Doesn't that want to just make you hear everything you can about reconciliation? Christ did it, and he's given us peace with God. That's what we're going after this morning. Uh, so Colossians 1, let's read verse, verses 21 to 23. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now, here it is, reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. From Colossians 1, uh, 21 to 23, we're going after four principles of reconciliation, four principles of our reconciliation to God. Uh, here's the first one. You needed reconciliation to God. You needed reconciliation to God. It's going to be coming in verse 21, but let me just quickly, uh, real quickly, bring you up to speed on where we're at in the book of Colossians. Uh, up to this point, uh, Paul's given some introductory thoughts. Paul's prayed. 
for the for the Colossian believers and for the church there. And then he's given one of the greatest descriptions in all of the New Testament of the supremacy of Jesus Christ over the entire creation. And in verse 20, in verse 20, uh, the text tells us that God is reconciling the entire creation to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. But he's not just reconciling the whole creation to himself. He's reconciling people. He's reconciling individuals. That's where we pick up in verse 21. Why would God need to reconcile individuals? Why? 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 Because there's a problem. And the problem is, uh, the problem is that there's a huge problem. Uh, That's where we start. Verse 21, the text says, And you who once were alienated. And you who once were alienated. Alienation means there's separation. In this case, there's separation between you and God. It's the state of all humanity. All have sinned, Romans 3.23. Isaiah 59.2 says this. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you. Can you imagine that? It's almost like God is saying that in our sin, God can't even look at us. That's alienation. Now, consider the separation uh, that occurs in human relationships. Now, how quickly it just takes a harsh word. Husbands, off to the garage. Wives, off to the bedroom in tears. There's alienation in work relationships. Employees trying to avoid their boss. Alienation in relationships leaves phone numbers left undialed. It's alienation. Alienation is separation. And if human relationships can be so separated because of conflict, how vast is the expanse of our separation from God when man who the Bible says in Genesis 6, 5, offends God with every intent of his heart. Greater is the separation than any canyon. Greater is the separation still than the widest and tallest mountain range, and greater still is the separation than any ocean, the vastness of the greatest ocean. Greater still is a separation between us and God than the expanse of the heavens themselves. And you, who once were alienated, what was in your past that alienated you from God? What separated you from God? What was it? Maybe there are some things you used to think that alienated you. Notice the text continues, and hostile in mind, and hostile in mind. What comes to mind when you think of hostility? You type hostile into Google, and uh, that's how I do most of my Bible study these days. If you type hostile into Google, you get story after story, image after image of soldiers in war-torn, enemy-laden lands. That's the picture of hostility. 
Consider yourself then, having been in a war with God. Here, we don't have a physical war, though. What do we have? We have a war in, what does the text say? We have a war in mind. It's not fair, God. You can't be good and let that happen. I hate you, God. Here's one I used to say. Anyone who believes in God is an idiot. How foolish I was. God doesn't exist. I don't like what your word says about that, so I'm not believing it. Those are the meditations of a hostile mind. What was your weapon of the mind against God? What did you use to think about him? If you think that's bad, uh, the text gets worse. A hostile mind always leads to evil deeds. Always. We didn't just have a thinking problem against God. We had a doing problem. Alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. I was a selfish, independent, drug experimenting, thieving, self-absorbed, outspoken atheist. That was me. That's what I thought about God. I had a long list of evil deeds. Let me just ask you, what was on your list? What was on your list? Why am I driving the nail on this so hard right now? One, because the text does. Two, I'm about to unfold for you the glorious truth of reconciliation to God and what Jesus Christ has done to bring us to a relationship of peace with him. But here's the thing, we can't get it. We can't get how glorious the solution is unless we know how bad the problem is. I'm not just trying to be mean. I'm not just trying to beat you up. But I just want you to understand what God says about what we once were. Do you get that? We were separated from God and we wanted to be. We were separated from God and we chose it. We weren't passive in our separation from God. We were active. We didn't want life with God. We would rather have ran away from him and experienced life without him. It's all about me, 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 me. You know, when people say things like, I've always loved God. Not true. You've probably heard that before. Raise your hand if you've heard that before. I've heard that a lot. What about uh, uh, when people say things like, um, I just think uh, everybody's good. Everybody's good. Everybody's good. Everybody's good and all roads lead to God. Not according to what God's word says. Um, Not according to what God's word says. God's word says alienation, hostility, evil deeds. I think God's made the point clearly. We were in the deepest need of reconciliation to God. Point to who needed reconciliation to God. Go ahead. Point to who needed reconciliation to God. Here's the glorious truth. Though every single one of us needed reconciliation to God, the glorious truth of it all is that God has reconciled you. 
God has reconciled you. God has reconciled you. Remember our definition. Reconciliation is setting up a relationship of peace that was previously non-existent. Reconciliation takes what's separate, and it makes it harmonious. Alienation becomes intimacy. Distance becomes nearness. Hostility becomes peace. The relationship that you formerly had with God, that relationship, it was a war. It was a war. But notice the text says, he has now reconciled you. He has now reconciled you. You who are far off, you, you who are far off, you've been brought near. You who were his enemies, he's made you friends. How? How did he do it? How did he do it? Back to the text. In his body of flesh by his death. His death. His death, his death, his death, his death on the cross. His death satisfied the full fury of his holy hatred over my sin and over your sin. His death. Get this. He wrote the peace treaty. He established and accomplished its requirements. He signed it with his blood. You, you, me, we couldn't do anything. We couldn't do anything to close the gap between us and God. No one could jump the canyon. No one could swim the ocean. No one could scale the mountain. No one could fly the separation between us and our God. Our reconciliation required God to act and act he did. Maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never been reconciled to God. Maybe, in fact, this is the first time you've ever heard that you needed to be reconciled to God. Maybe you're sitting as I'm sharing God's word with you now and you're convicted of your own sin. I would urge you, I would urge you to come to the cross of Christ by faith this morning. Trust in him for your forgiveness. Be reconciled to God. If there's anything I've prayed for, for God to do this morning, that somebody would be reconciled to God for the very first time this morning. Come, the invitation's out. God wants you to come. Come to him. Be reconciled to God through the death of Jesus Christ. Most of you, uh, most of you have already been reconciled to God. That's why you're in church. Maybe you're like the lady who asked me several months ago, you know, why would he go through all that for me? Why? This seems so meaningless. What he gets out of it and what he had to go through, why? Here's the first answer. I don't know. I don't know. Text gives us another answer. Here's what the text says. In order... In order to present you holy, that's being unique from the world in the highest moral purity, and blameless without any spot or wrinkle, and above reproach before him, which means unable to be accused of any wrongdoing by anyone. The point is that Christ has reconciled you to make you like him, and you will be like him in the last day. Church, 
the day is coming. The day is coming when we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, 1 John 3, 2. God's made certain, and he made certain in Jesus Christ that his people will reflect his glory in every thought of their heart, in every decision of their will, in every heartfelt affection for God and others to the praise of his glory forever. Maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you came in, and maybe you're battling lust. In that day, you'll have an entirely pure heart. Maybe you're struggling this morning to control your tongue. In that day, you will have the full gentleness of wisdom. Maybe, you're, maybe you came in this morning. Maybe you're struggling. Maybe you're just struggling with sadness. In that day, there will be fullness of joy beyond belief in his presence, in his presence forever. God has reconciled you for the last day. Here's a question, though. How do you know you're going to experience that in the last day? I mean, how do you know you're going to be there? How do you know? Here's the answer. Perseverance. The answer is perseverance. The result of being reconciled to God is perseverance. You needed reconciliation to God. God has reconciled you. Reconciliation produces your perseverance. Reconciliation produces your perseverance. That's coming in verse 23, but uh, perseverance, perseverance, what does it mean? Perseverance means to persist in, to continue in until the end, to persist in, to continue in until the end. And uh, here's what we're going after in this point. Reconciliation produces perseverance. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You will persevere because reconciliation produces your perseverance. The text reads in verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, This is the most challenging phrase in this entire passage. If indeed you continue in the faith. Josh, I thought you just said that I would persevere. I mean, you just just said I will persevere because reconciliation produces perseverance. Here's what Paul says. Paul says, if indeed you continue in the faith. Paul seems just a little bit less sure than you. And I mean, no offense, no offense, but in an arm wrestling match, Um, between you and Paul, I'm going with Paul every single time. So what's up with that? What's going, what's, what's up with that? What's going on here? You know, I'm not, uh, uh, Paul is not saying, or this is what it, this is what it appears like Paul is saying. It appears like Paul's saying, um, if you persevere, though you may not. That's kind of what it feels like when I read it, doesn't it? Well, I'm not big on getting overly technical. Most of the time, it's not necessary. Uh, but here's the thing. I want you to have confidence in what God's word says. I don't, want to have confidence. I don't want you to have confidence in just something I say about a passage. Isn't that what you want anyways? Yeah. Let's try that again. Isn't that what you want anyways? Yeah. So let me just give you two reasons why I believe this statement, if, you can, if indeed you continue in the faith, uh, Paul is making a confident assertion. You will continue in the faith. In effect, Paul's saying something like this. If indeed you continue in the faith, and I'm sure you will. Two reasons. First, Paul expresses confidence to the Colossian church in chapter 2, verse 5. In chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, here's the confidence, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. 
Paul isn't doubting where the Colossians are at. It's not if you persevere, though you may not. Uh, and then a chapter later, Paul's like, man, you guys are doing great. I'm rejoicing because I see the firmness of your faith. So Paul's already express, is expressing confidence to the Colossian church. That's reason number one. The second one, uh, the, the same phrase, if indeed, uh, denotes confidence in every other place it's used in Scripture, almost every other place it's used in Scripture. It almost always denotes confidence. It's, it doesn't come, come across in English well. We think if indeed, we think conditional, doubt. Um, that's not what happens when Paul uses it. In fact, in Ephesians, Ephesians 3.2 says this, assuming... And assuming is also the same word that's used, if indeed. Assuming, if indeed, okay? Assuming, or if indeed, that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Do you think the Ephesian church had heard the gospel from Paul? Of course they had. Of course they had. Uh, uh, he's writing this to the church. Of course they've heard of the stewardship of God's grace. And Paul's like... Assuming you've heard of it, and I, I'm sure you have, I know you have, I shared it with you. So it's a rhetorical function, but it's giving confidence. So Paul is saying, I'm sure you will continue in the faith. I'm sure you will continue in the faith. Let me bring it a little bit closer to home. Let me try to illustrate this. We do this all the time. Um, if, I, uh, uh, if, I said, uh, if I said to Doug, if I said to Doug, um, Doug, if indeed you love your wife, uh, then go home and tell her all the time. Well, um, nobody here doubts that Doug loves his wife, right? Um, I know Doug loves his wife, and so what I'm really uh, saying is, if indeed you love your wife, and I'm sure that you do, and guess what? Go home and tell her you love her all the time, and I'm sure that you will. It's a confident assertion. It's really a confidence. Paul's saying, if you continue in the faith, and I'm sure you will. Hey, 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 you're going to continue in the faith. I'm sure you will. You've been reconciled to God, and reconciliation to God produces perseverance, and that's why Paul can be so sure here. That's why he can make such a confident assertion. You know, there may be some days where you're just ready to throw in the towel on the Christian life. Has it ever just felt so hard just to obey one command of Scripture? Anybody know what I'm talking about? No. <laughs> Here I am again in my failure. It's hard. It's hard. How hard is it just for me to share my faith with somebody around me? ready to throw in the towel maybe sometimes ready to give up i'm done trying here's the deal god has reconciled you to himself he can't let you quit he can't let you quit because he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of jesus christ if he began a work in you he will finish it Reconciliation produces perseverance. Think about a human relationship. Maybe with a spouse, maybe uh, with a coworker, maybe with a loved family member. Uh, one has had some conflict, but through loving communication and through forgiveness, 
uh, it's been completely reconciled. Is that relationship stronger or weaker uh, than before the conflict? How, how many would say uh, that it's weaker? How many would say, raise your hand, that it's stronger? It's stronger, right? Obviously, it's stronger. It's stronger. See, every time a relationship is reconciled, uh, you put another chalk mark up on the board uh, to uh, a greater perseverance in the relationship. Every single time. And every, every chalk mark, every single one, every reconciled conflict, producing greater perseverance. See, there's never been a failed relationship. There's never been a failed marriage where every conflict was reconciled. When conflict's reconciled, you persevere together. Reconciliation produces perseverance. Now, if that's true in human relationships, if that's true in human relationships that can just be reconciled through repentance and through forgiveness, how much more is that true? How much more is that true of our relationship to God who sent his son in the world, into the world, who spanned the heavens to go all the way to the cross to give up his life to reconcile you? He can't let you quit. You will persevere. I'm sure you will. But... Have you ever wondered this? Have you ever thought about this? Have you ever wondered, am I going to be faithful? Am I, am I really going to be faithful to the end? Am I going to make it till I die or till Jesus returns? I've wondered that. I've wondered that a lot. And uh, so oftentimes I just close my prayer and in desperation, God, make me faithful to the end. Here's my comfort. My comfort is I know I've been reconciled to God. I know I've been reconciled to God. God will do it. God will take me to the end. But if God's going to do it, does that mean I can just kind of continue in my sin? Does that mean I just kind of continue to do whatever I want? Does that mean I can just continue to uh, uh, habitually uh, live in ways that displease the Lord, because God's going to do it. Uh, the answer is no. <laughs> so even though Paul here is con making a confident assertion that we will persevere, there's still a very real warning, even if it's only implied that we must persevere, that we must persevere, because the proof, here's our last point, because the proof of reconciliation is in your perseverance. The proof of your reconciliation is in your perseverance. You needed reconciliation to God. God has reconciled you. Reconciliation produces perseverance. The proof of your reconciliation to God, the proof of it, is in your perseverance. It's certainly implied in verse 23. Certainly in other places of Scripture, it's clear that Paul is warning us to persevere, and we have a responsibility to do so. The cliche says the proof is in the, the, proof is in the pudding. And in the Christian life, the proof is in the pudding, and the pudding is perseverance. The pudding is perseverance. I must persevere. This is the part of perseverance that's our responsibility. Ask the person sitting next to you. Go ahead and do this. Ask them. Ask them say, got pudding?
see, do you know people? Do you know people who have maybe prayed a prayer at an event or something? Or uh, maybe they've acted like a Christian for a season, and then they walk away from the faith either in word or deed? Just give it a little time, and they're gone. They were around the church for a while, but where do they go? What about them? What about them? Um, Here's the thing. That person was never reconciled to God. Maybe there was some ability to explain uh, that Jesus died to save us from our sins. It never moved them to loving obedience to the Savior. Maybe there was an assumption that Jesus lived and died to serve them. Maybe they just felt a little bit better being around Christians for a while. There hasn't been genuine passion in their hearts for Christ. See, some people outwardly renounce the faith uh, by what they claim to believe. Other people... Uh, They just claim to continue to believe it, but their life just doesn't demonstrate it. There's no fruit. Do you know people like that? Do you know anybody like that? I mean, you can talk to them until they're blue in the face, and they're just going to tell you over and over and over again how much they believe in Jesus, and their life reflects none of Christ's likeness. You just have a sense there's no spiritual life in them at all. No perseverance, no proof. No perseverance, no proof of reconciliation to God. Uh, Titus 1.16, more true than ever in our day in American Christianity, Christianity, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him. No, no, no perseverance, no proof. Well, so did they lose their salvation? Did they lose it? Do they have it and lose it? No, the Bible teaches that you can't lose your salvation. You can only prove you never had it. You can't lose it. You only prove you never had it. When I was finishing up college, uh, we were attending a great church. We had a thriving college college ministry. One of the guys who had been really faithful, he'd been really faithful in the college ministry, uh, his his freshman, his sophomore year, uh, his junior and senior year, he was the president of the college ministry. He led us in devotionals. He led us in prayers. He... Uh, he ministered to us. He modeled Christ-like servanthood. He even started a, uh, an outreach on campus, a multi-ministry outreach on campus in the, in the community. One and a half years ago, he started a blog titled Absk Fide. Absk Fide, which is Latin for without faith. And on it, he said, I no longer believe in Christianity or God. And then he did in exactly the opposite way of the way Martin Martin Luther used the words. He said, here I stand, I can do no other. How sad is that? a person get to that point how do you get there the answer they were never he was never reconciled to god he thought he believed but he only had the appearance of belief i need to ask you have you been reconciled to god through life-transforming faith in Jesus Christ, or do you just have the appearance of belief? 
Maybe you feel like, I don't know. I'm trying to be a good Christian. I struggle with sin a lot. Uh, so, you uh, know, my struggle, are you, are you, can I ever know? Can I ever actually know? And what if I'm like that guy? What if I am? What if I'm like that guy? And, and I just think I'm reconciled to God. You know, how would I know if I just had the appearance of belief? Thankfully, God gave us a whole book for that. And if you're struggling, even as I'm sharing this with you now, if you're struggling, get to 1 John. Get to 1 John today. Stay in 1 John today. And come back to 1 John many more times this week until the Holy Spirit of God assures you of your salvation or reveals to you that you've never been reconciled to God. If you need help with it, call us this week. Talk to your small group leader. We want to help you with that. Pastors would love to talk to you. We, God wants you to know that you're reconciled to him. If you've been reconciled to God, you must persevere in the faith. You must persevere in the faith. And the text tells us how. Stable and steadfast. Stable and steadfast. Not shifting around by every wind of doctrine on a New York Times bestseller list. You know, not kind of like, I believe this today, I believe this today, I believe this today. Tomorrow I might believe that. But stable and steadfast, resolved on the gospel of Jesus Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the text continues to warn, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. That we're reconciled to God through the death of his son. We're reconciled to God through the death of his son. Let me very quickly give you three ways that, we move, that we're in danger of moving away from the hope of the gospel. Three quickly. They're all from the book of Colossians. Here's number one. By denying the deity of Jesus Christ. If there comes a point where you deny the deity of Jesus Christ, you have entirely moved away from the hope of the gospel. That's happening all over the place in people's lives and in organizations. The second one is by emphasizing our performance over grace. If you have an um, o o overview umbrella of Colossians chapter 2, you really come to, is it my performance or is it grace? You know, how many times have we in failure just been discouraged and I'm not growing at the pace that I think I should be and I can't ever seem to get over that. And it's so much about how, how good we are doing at living the Christian life. You know, maybe if you came in with discouragement and frustration this morning, maybe instead of just allowing those things, discouragement and frustration are responses to emphasize my performance, how good I'm doing. Maybe instead it's, God, thank you for the mercy of Jesus Christ. I am so sinful. And you were so merciful to me. And let the kindness of God lead you to repentance. That's grace. And finally, just by choosing sin. If I outright just am choosing sin in my life, and I'm not broken about it, and I don't seem to care, I am moving way away from the hope of the gospel. Every intentional choice to sin is a move away from hoping in the gospel. The proof of reconciliation is in your perseverance. Uh, remain stable. Remain steadfast. Do not move away from the hope of the gospel that you heard as the text ends, which was, has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You needed reconciliation to God. God has reconciled you. Reconciliation produces perseverance. God will do it. But then we must do it. And the proof of our reconciliation is in our perseverance. As followers of Christ, we've been reconciled. We have been reconciled. God set up a relationship of peace with us that was previously non-existent. Take heart. You're going to make it to the end. The finish line, it's certain. God will do it. You will do it. You will continue in the faith. I'm sure 
you will. Let's close in prayer. God, thank you for this tremendous reconciliation through the death of God's own son. Your son, Lord, your dear son, your precious son, you've given him to reconcile us to yourself, to present you, present us like you in the last day, Lord. God, thank you for him. God, I pray that we would leave encouraged for the person who's in trial. God, might they take heart that they've been reconciled to you and need nothing more. Help us to apply the word to our lives, God, this week, rejoicing that you reconcile wayward hearts through Christ. In his name, amen.